Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings, everyone. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. We host the Iroquois History and Legends podcast. We dive into a deep, dark part of history that very few people have ever covered. We cover the history and culture of the Iroquois League, also known as the Haudenosaunee, or Six Nations. United together, they formed a representative government that predates all democracy in the Western Hemisphere. They interacted with almost every major European power that was involved in North America. Yet, you seem to know nothing about them. Round out your knowledge. Look us up. We're Iroquois History and Legends. I-R-O-Q-U-O-I-S. Iroquois History and Legends. Greetings, comrades. Well, uh, we have a lot of news in this episode, actually, together with our insights about Germany and the main story of this episode. But first, first I actually want to plug a company for you. See, I was recently contacted by the Swedish earphone company Studio Sweden, who make premium earphones. See, these awesome people, they heard that I was having earphone issues in my Sovconomy episodes... And they decided to help out, and they sent me a pair of magnificent, amazing Regent black earphones that they make. Well, and obviously they just asked asked me to plug them if they turn out to be nice. Guess what? They're amazing. Well, I'm I'm usually using extremely cheap earphones, so I never even truly understand understood what quality earphones were and how they sounded. But now I do, and I'm very happy to be working with these earphones and. Uh, for starters, I can actually hear my podcast, especially those who, the, of the more quieter ones, as I listen to my phone as I'm walking on the street. So, uh, very happy to promote these guys, and you should really, really give them a, give them a try, too. And, uh, yeah, Alice will tell you more about them in the middle segment, as we have a discount code for you, and we have a link where you can also buy these Regent, Regent Black Earphones. It's uh, uh, another thing, they also, during October, they donate 10% of their income to Swedish Breast Cancer Foundation, Rosa Bandet. And, yeah, many other nice things. So, uh, Alice will tell you all about them in the middle segment. Uh, that was the first part. Secondly, hey, we're in Berlin for, like, uh, five days. Which obviously included the, the Stasi Museum visit, from which we got a lot of stuff to be used in this episode. As obviously visiting Berlin, especially the East Berlin, uh, was a very different, different experience for me as a Soviet bloc person from those insights that a Western person would have. Okay, that's that's about enough uh, with the news, and now uh, on with the show. So, as you might have guessed from the title of this episode, here we're going to talk about the Stasi and how they compare to the KGB, but mostly about Stasi, as I've uh, I've covered the nice men from that glorious uh, organization in our previous episodes. 
Now, I'm using my notes from my own visit in the Stasi Museum, where I was uh, happy enough to actually have an in-depth conversation with the tour guide, and I'm also using information which is given by the Federal Commission for the Stasi Records website, and, of course, the DDR Museum. Now, uh, I shared some of my KGB insights with them in the Stasi Museum, too, and uh, hopefully it helps with them, but there was there were quite a lot of uh, interesting nuances and things that really separate these two uh, oppressive institutions. Now, for starters, they both were ministries of state security. Well, in uh, in Russian case, it was the Commissariat of State Security. But here, it was Ministry of State Security, officially abbreviated MFS, but East Germans just called it Staatssicherheit, or Stasi for short. I'll use the term Stasi here, even though, yes, the official abbreviation is MFS, but, you know, nobody knows that one. So, Stasi had two functions, just like the KGB. It worked as a secret service and, of course, a secret police. They ran a huge apparatus with uh, about 90, 91,000 full-time employees. These people were the official employees, of course, but we just can't forget, just because uh, just like the KGB, they had unofficial collaborators, which are called IM for short in German, and they, uh, in the museum, think that they had about 189,000 such unofficial collaborators. Uh, just like in the KGB, these guys were spies and informers from, like, all parts of society who basically provided Stasi with all their information about people that these guys came in contact with. You know, nice systems of public denunciations, workers uh, denouncing their their members at work, you know, family members, friends, uh, teenagers uh, spying on their classmates, the usual, just just like the KGB did this. Now, what, what's interesting here is that Stasi penetrated this depth of this network, was very concentrated and uh, even more, even more tight than the KGB ones. Uh, this might be explained by the vastness of the Soviet Union or something, but it's really crazy, because uh, it was calculated that about 2% of the population of East Germany were somehow connected with Stasi, either as these unofficial informers or just directly working for them. So yeah, that's like one out of every people who were an informant there. Now, for KGB, we can put the numbers at the official personnel at more than 480,000, which includes 200,000 soldiers in the border guards, uh, and the estimates of the numbers of informers, these unofficial collaborators in the USSR, well, they range in the millions, but nobody knows exactly how many, because uh, unlike East Germany, where the research is kind of ongoing, at least in Latvia, there are very few people with access to these ex-KGB files, so we actually just don't know, and a lot of these documents were just destroyed. But approximately 1%, maybe 1.5% of people worked for the KGB, not 2%. And, you know, when we're talking about people, then that's that's quite a large percentage here. Now, some bits of history on this awesome Stasi organization here, because... Uh, we really need to take a look at how this was founded. The official date of establishing this is the 8th of February of 1950, when the GDR Volkskammer, or the People's Chamber, of course unanimously passed the <clears throat> bill to establish a Ministry of State Security. It was, by the way, preceded, obviously, by a resolution of the SED Politburo at the end of January. Uh, SED is the Socialist Unity Party of Germany, which served the same role as the All-Russian Communist <clears throat> Bolshevik Party there, uh, which, by the Stalin's personal orders, was created when the like previously rival Social Democratic Party was... <laughs> was kind of joined together and united with um, with the Communist Party, even though communists soon took the leading role in this and there wasn't, wasn't much of social democracy left there. So, Deputy Prime Minister Walter Urlicht appointed Wilhelm Zasser as the minister of this new Ministry of State Security and Erich Mielke as a permanent secretary on 16th of February 1950. Zeisser, by the way, was at the same time kind of co-opted both onto the party executive committee and the Politburo, but there was no real kind of supervision of his over his own ministry, because uh, it was mostly just run by Mielke. Zeisser was kind of he count he was the counts as minister, but uh, 
yeah, real power was in was in Milka's hands. And yeah, this this there was re- no real supervision by the party of this organization, anyways, because Deputy Prime Minister Otto Nuschke had later stated in 1953 that the Ministry of State Security acts as an authority with its own responsibilities. And this was kind of an interesting aspect there, because similarly to the KGB, this is how things basically operated. Everyone watched everyone, and this this Ministry of State Security was kind of this watchdog who looked closely even even of the who looked closely at the party members of the SCD themselves. It was like the omnipresent, omnipresent, know know it all, uh, know it all, nice person who stands right behind you with with a nice Makarov in his hands and makes sure that you know the mandatory happiness is being uh, being <laughs> being done everywhere, so to speak. <clears throat> but yeah, in reality, this <laughs> this thing was controlled by the KGB. These KGB officers uh, were were kind of assigned to be <clears throat> instructors to every head of a service unit there. And, you know, in some important cases, the Soviet responsible organs, in this case, either KGB or GRU, uh, sometimes they took over investigations themselves, even though from uh, the Soviet sources we learned that they really didn't like to do that because it looked bad on paper, because East Germany was supposed to be this kind of... Uh, non-Soviet, kind of Western communist, uh, slightly more independent satellite state. It, at least it should appear to the Westerners that it was more independent from the Soviet Union. So they would just... Uh, they they had enough issues to deal with otherwise, especially in the vast territory of the Soviet Union, so they really wanted uh, to make sure that Stasi uh, itself could uh, could kind of promote this socialist socialist unity party's agenda there and kind of make sure that everything worked nice and smoothly. But the KGB really complained about the situation because in 1953, at uh, this time, the reports back to Moscow were written by the KGB agents were that the Stasi officers, quote, lacked, uh, lacked proper education and lacked necessary training for especially secret assignments and information gathering. Now, this would all change as eventually Stasi would definitely read the KGB's handbook on things and apply some neat German efficiency and some more technologies to that. But yeah, this thing was basically uh, intended to be, Stasi, was to be that of locating and arresting all opponents of this uh, GDR's transformation to the people's democracy, obviously a Soviet model of uh, the people's democracy. And, as such, they carried out the will of the SCD party leadership. They were known as the sword and the shield of the party, just like KGB was in the Soviet Union. And Zeisser himself, this minister of this, of this Ministry of State, State Security, he was responsible in the Politburo for, for this whole apparatus in state security, but so there was still only kind of a loose association between this central committee apparatus and the party organization within within this ministry, because the ministry essentially uh, were like these bad guys, and and the the guys who beat people up, but they weren't exactly uh, simultaneous and, and and kind of synonymous with party themselves, even though ninety uh, percent of them were party members. Now about this uh, this uh, arresting and locating of all opponents of the GDR's transformation of uh, pure better democracy, best country on planet Earth, and greatest system. Yeah, this was to be carried out in uh, like basically everywhere. In the economy and agriculture, obviously in the political system with its institutions and in religious groups. Moreover, kind of when the Stalinist purges in the early fifties. Uh, happened. Stasi carried out investigations against perpetrated elements, <clears throat> perpetrated elements hostile to the party, as well as kind of even more alleged Trotskyists and Titoists. And the main methods of this uh, state security service during the phase of terrorist administrative attainment and securing of power mostly consisted of arbitrary arrests and extorting confessions using unceasing, unceasing nightly interrogations and other methods of torture. Oh wow, it kind of makes me feel like home already, this is just great. These aim to prove the alleged espionage activities of the person under the arrest for Western intelligence services, and of course, underground organizations. 
Because the Stalinist mindset of the East Germany was just like at home. You know, when something goes wrong, it is always sabotage, comrades. It is never the fault of that something breaking down, someone drinking vodka, or someone being unreliable. No, when some, something goes down and people start to complain about, you know, we're, we're, we're not producing any good stuff in this factory and the production is low, then you know what? If you criticize this, you criticize the state, and we can't have that, because the party, the, the will of the party becomes later on the will of the people. Uh, they, they actually put it in the constitution there. So, um, if you criticize the party, you criticize the people, which is a very bad thing. And as happiness is mandatory, uh, but, but as productivity is low, you have to blame someone. So, hey, blame, blame Western spies and sabotage. And just arrest people at random, then put them in, um, put them in reprimand jails, make, make them go insane, beat them up a bit, and you know, everyone lives off better than previously. The Stasi leadership consisted almost entirely of long-standing communists. Among them, experienced underground fighters, such as previously mentioned Minister Zeisser and Eilke. And they used to take in, you know, every average communist ever, and they used to take, like, ex-policemen too, they were kind of picky about what was going on, but after some volatile developments in 1952, some strikes happening among factory workers, and, you know, some some understanding of the Stasi leadership that they just couldn't really rely on Olgard so much, uh, then they decided to take on mainly young SED members, uh, also members of the Free German Youth, which is how they called their uh, essentially analog of uh, Komsomol, you know, the communist youth. And they took up new young caters of people's police, because that wasn't the one and the same there. These guys had no personal experience of the communist labor movement before 1945, and mainly came from underprivileged proletarian backgrounds, and usually had only an elementary general education with equally limited police and secret service knowledge. Now, by 1953, about 92% of the operatives were SED members, and the others were regarded as, as I said, as, quote, <clears throat> party members without membership card. Now, one of the main tasks of the Stasi, again, was also foreign espionage, which was primarily responsibility of the HVA, or the main directorate for reconnaissance. This was headed by Marcus Wolf from 1952, until 1986, and later on from 1986 by, by Werner Grossmann. The HVA is kind of compar comparable to uh, GRU, uh, but the, the KGB they also had their foreign intelligence arm, but they were mostly interested in state security. These HVA guys are the ones which uh, were largely operating at West Germany and West Berlin. These guys infiltrated public institutions, political parties, and government offices. The HVA also systematically carried out industrial and technical espionage in West German companies, uh, which is a role, by the way, which the military uh, espionage of the Soviet Union would be doing the GRU, not the KGB. By uh, 1989, this subsection of Stasi, the HVA, had a full-time staff of 4,600 people, plus uh, another 13,400 unofficial collaborators in the GDR, and another 1,500 in West Germany. The HVA had been acting as a part of the overall overall apparatus, kind of both in its policies of persecution within the GDR and its operations abroad. So they were kind of... Uh, they, the you know, counterintelligence part was different from this, but these guys were those who did all the spying. After the peaceful revolution, the HVA was allowed to kind of dissolve itself, and, well, obviously, these guys took the opportunity to eliminate a lot of a lot of their documents, so not as much is known by them as is about the general, uh, general organizations of the Stasi. Now, uh, previously we mentioned these Soviet advisors which used to give uh, direct instructions to this uh, to the, this East uh, German uh, State Security Service. In the late 1950s, however, they get replaced by the so-called Lazen officers, and Stasi is given a certain amount of independence. Because giving a certain amount of independence really looks better than just this uh, strict, utter, close control 
and also this was done so so the you know German people would accept uh, being controlled by other Germans, even in the secret police sense, rather than the Soviets, because uh, it was thought in the Soviet Union that the direct control by Soviet state authorities would cause endless riots in these territories. Now, obviously. Uh, Stasi cooperated with the brother organizations of also other Warsaw Pact states, but priority was given to the surveillance of GDR citizens in socialist countries abroad and to the prevention uh, prevention of attempts to escape. Besides, by the way, the, the, the work of, uh, of Stasi abroad, I have to remind you that both KGB and GRU were very active in East Germany, and they were also active in West Germany, obviously and uh, they usually held regular working meetings, which were still kind of uh, held to exchange information and plan joint operations. One of the reasons why why the Soviets did this was because they trained a lot of operatives themselves in their third intelligence uh, college of the diplomatic facility that they had, and they traded the information to the Stasi members, and they traded state resources for what the Stasi could give them. But, weirdly enough, in 1977, the KGB, uh, together with other Warsaw Pact state security services, uh, agreed to set up a joint database because of this sharing reason, because it was more... uh, it was easier for the KGB to gather information that way. Why do I say it was easier for the KGB? Well... Because this only KGB had actually direct access to the data. They set up this uh, this SOUD, which is the abbreviation of uh, this thing, which uh, by the end of 1987 contained information of over 188,000 people who were regarded as a <clears throat> danger. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of obvious that only uh, the Soviet secret services had access to this. Because KGB are such nice men that it would be kind of um, impolite to mess up their work. As the big brother really needs all the attention here. Now, the full-time employees of the Ministry of State Security made up the core staff of this secret police. In a similar way to the Cheka, the first Soviet secret police uh, Stasi staff, saw themselves as an elite for the protection of the ruling Communist Party. The guiding principle of for their activities was the passionate and implacable struggle against the enemy, uh, who questioned the role of the party. From this principle, they deduced the right to use violent and unlawful methods. And this was kind of crazy, because uh, right now in the Stasi Museum in their offices, there are uh, two monuments there, uh, which have kind of remained, two statues, which have remained there since the opening of the organization. One is for Karl Marx, the nice creator of all this socialism thing, and the other one for Frelik Dzerzhinsky, the first director and creator of the NKVD, which later became became KGB. So here you can understand that the ties were quite close among them. So Stasi used a strict criteria to select its full-time employees. The main focus was obviously on party loyalty and the ban on contacts with the West. And the staff were sworn to the, secrecy, uh, to the strictest secrecy, and they were subject to rigorous rules and, and checking things. Apart from very few civilian employees, the full-time staff members of the Stasi held also military ranks. They enjoyed a- above-average salaries, and you know they had a lot of privileges, as you would expect from secret service people in the Soviet uh, in the Soviet-led country in the whole circle. The Stasi recruited its staff mainly from the Socialist Unity Party of Germany, the SED, and its youth organization. Often, by the way, which is interesting, whole families were employed by the Stasi, and this was also uh, done by the KGB. The, the idea being that if you have a whole family there, then it would be kind of easier to control them. And, you know, obviously, if a husband and wife are in the same secret organization, then yes, there are other people, often from the KGB, who are listening to you, and uh, <laughs> this led to often interesting family life. So yeah, later on as uh, they had to deal with more and more problems such as rock and roll and punks and whatever, uh, Stasi just expanded and expanded. And uh, in the end, at the end, the Stasi largely had basically disconnected itself from the regular planning of the national budget on financial constraints 
because uh, for the Stasi leaders and heads of department, it was a natural assumption that there was a great need for cater. As more and more of the Stasi was becoming the political cure-all used to fight against any hostile influences which were perceived to be omnipresent. At the same time, the secret apparatus was developing more and more into a closed company. It preferred to fill its enormous manpower requirements with offspring of its own employees and those of other members of the security apparatus. Now, why could the Stasi become um, become more and more independent from the regular budget was the fact that uh, basically West Germany paid for Stasi to exist in a very interesting way. Because uh, this is... Uh, as far as I got told in the museum, kind of a dual role of, of this whole thing was the fact that often the West Germans would agree to pay Stasi money. Technically, they would pay East German government money, but as it was handled by Stasi, they just appro appropriated the funds, as you would expect, uh, So, for political prisoners. And technically, uh, technically, it was written in this agreement and the deal that though that the West Germany would pay a certain amount of money for each political prisoner in their actually valuable Deutschmarks, which were kind of, you know, actual money, unlike these German these German extremely soft marks. But the prisoner would then have to be offered to move to either to East Germany or to West Germany, you know, to be allowed free passage. Some of them were, some of them, those who actually knew about this possibility and opportunity, but most of them were just told, nah, you can just go home now. And, you know, Stasi just pocketed the money. And uh, in the museum, there are documentation about the fact that um, at least, at least 126 prisoners who existed only on paper were sold this way. Because Stasi needed caterers and they needed money. And, you know, selling non-existent prisoners is the best way how to gain money. Now, why is this considered a bad thing is that this also led to more and more people being seen as the enemies of the state and as these saboteurs, and they were kind of sought out even more than they could have been maybe otherwise, because the state needed money, and Stasi and everyone in their departments needed some money too, which they would then steal. Obviously, Soviets didn't sell out their political prisoners for money to anyone. So, in a way, uh, in a way, uh, the Soviet mass arrests, uh, mass arrests, uh, and people being imprisoned were kind of slow. The, the amounts of these things were slowly declining, and they were later on putting people into mental asylums. The amount of arrests kind of uh, kind of lessened during the 70s and 80s, while the Stasi just decided that. Yeah, we can make money this way, so whilst the KGB became ever an omnipresent threat, it was it was a psychological one, unless people got arrested, everyone just got surveilled, the Stasi just carried on arresting people. Why? Because, hey, West Germans are going to pay for them, won't they? But yeah, if you would be uh, in this communist youth organization and you wanted a job with Stasi, there was this nice poster explaining how this how this happened. It was like a nice system. For example, when you're in your seventh grade, you take your preliminary decision, and the poster invites you to make an informal application to your teacher. In the eighth grade, once you have made your final decision, you make a declaration of intent to the Stasi and you fill out an application form. In the ninth grade, you will be informed if your achievements and behavior qualify you as a candidate for the Stasi. And in the 10th grade, and further on in vocational training, uh, the 10th grade opens the door for your training as a non-commissioned officer candidate. And then you can be hired as a non-commissioned officer or a professional officer in the Stasi. This is how you become a professional and can then start arresting people for fun and profit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, this is Alice. Firstly, we want to say our sincerest thank you to all our patrons for supporting the show. And our new patrons who joined us since last time we mentioned them are Kay Stanley, Lynn, Charles, James, Matthew, Menthol Unicorns, Anton, Jerwin, Anthony, Grey Cat, and David. Super large thank you for supporting the show, comrades. Together, we're on the path to victory. If you want to become our patron and help us out on the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the eastern border or clicking the link in our website. Also, I want to speak about our friendly Swedish supplier of earphones, Studio Sweden. They want to revolutionize the way people see headphones as not just a tech device, but also an accessory. While emphasizing their modern, Scandinavian design, they also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest-rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. They also provide free worldwide shipping. As part of a breast cancer fundraiser, they will be donating 10% of all their profits in October of their pink products to the Pink Ribbon Foundation in Sweden. Rosa Bandet. Oh, and if you visit their website studiosweden.com and enter our promo code the eastern border then you get a discount how cool is that we also here in the eastern border have a pair of these and now we understand that the rest have been well inferior quality earphones and we hope that you'll enjoy these as much as we do i usually am the kind of person that breaks one pair of earphones maybe once in three months, maybe four, but these have so far survived very well with even my bad luck. We'll see in a while if they have survived, so stay tuned, dear listeners. And finally, of course, remember to visit us in our webpage, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Maybe buy a t-shirt or mug, or send us an email with a question or suggestion. Kristaps tries really hard to answer them all lately. You can follow us on Facebook on the Eastern Border page or Twitter at the Eastern underscore border and leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a good one. But hey, we take the bad ones as a source of improvement. And that's what real comrades do. And now back to the show. Remember, happiness is mandatory. Now, that's all about the official guys, but there were also the unofficial collaborators, of course. The uh, IMs. <clears throat> These guys were the key weapon of Stasi. They were used primarily inside the GDR. With their help, the Stasi, just like KGB at home, spied on the population and gathered information about its modes and any attempts at <clears throat> subversive anti-communist anti-party activities. In written or oral statements, collaborators committed themselves to working undercover with the Stasi. They reported on all areas of society, infiltrated opposition groups, supplied uh, supplied a lot of intimate information about their friends, colleagues, everyone else. They also played an active role in the state security's activities in the field of the so-called <clears throat> psychic demolition, which is an interesting term. Um, operative psychology is another one. Uh, this is wild, more widely used by the KGB, but I bet the Stasi called it psychic demolition. The thing is, sometimes it was sometimes it was enough to just make you feel afraid all the time. Like Stasi would just openly watch you. You would just get you would just get followed for like three years quite openly, and you would see these secret cameras everywhere. Uh, there was one in Stasi museum where it was basically, it's like. You know, there there are these wooden things where birds birds supposed to live, like birdhouses, and there are just fake, obvious cameras mounted in these, so that if the Stasi wanted 
they could make you know that you are being followed and that every second of your life you're being watched, even though sometimes you weren't. But they would make it appear that way. This would probably go... This would probably cause you to go crazy a bit, too. And if, if more and more pressure is applied to you... Because, you see, uh, the KGB would just, you know, plant evidence on you and, and just beat you up. But Stasi, they used some German efficiency and they had a bit more style here. They would... If you were on the verge of doing something stupid, and by stupid I mean, you know, think, thinking about uh, escaping uh, to the to the Federal Republic of Germany, which by the way was a crime in East Germany and could land you from one to three years in prison, just thinking about this escaping itself, then they would just poke you and poke you and just tear you down psychologically to such a degree that you would either slip up and make a mistake or just go crazy enough so that they would actually have a real, you know, reason to arrest you, so that they could, so that they could kind of just put you in prison for for that. Another interesting thing is um, is the fact that those shot on the wall, wall by the Volkspolizei and by the Stasi too, because you know the Stasi actually were the guys who, if you escaped to West uh, Germany and knew too much, these guys, the Stasi, would hunt you down and kill you. But everyone shot on the wall were were cremated as soon as soon as possible and all their colleagues would get told that there was an accident or that these were kind of seditious guys and they had to sign a paper that yes yes we we had nothing to do with this uh, seditious person who just uh, randomly suffered a weird accident here while he was uh, going somewhere but the interesting part is the fact that uh, yeah if you went to your you know dad's funeral or colleague's funeral or aunt's funeral or whatever and even if you even if you even if you cared about the fact that you know he was cremated and now you have to put the urn somewhere and if you cared about the situation you would automatically get on the stasi's you know naughty list and then they would start just really really looking after you Stasi, apparently, uh, according to the data given to me in the museum, opened 90,000 letters daily. All mail going to the West Germany was uh, was opened. And uh, and also, they did a ton of surveillance apparatus here, and they never gave up. They used a lot more... They, lose, they used a lot more technology than the KGB did, because uh, in these Germany, communal flats were way less known than in the rest of the socialist bloc countries, so, you know, you just couldn't be assigned a dude who just lives in your apartment. So they actually planted bu planted uh, bugs and cameras and and photographed and really used a lot of technological devices for surveillance, and uh, they used infrared cameras so that they could uh, use infrared... so that they could photograph you in the dark. It was kind of a crazy system. Like I said, um, kind of KGB, but less brutality and more refinement there. And all of this, all of this surveillance thing was mostly done by these collaborators who were just just there to photo stuff and to write letters about you, and then the agents would kind of work with information. Of course, agents gathered themselves gathered information for gathered information themselves too, but the, the collaborators who had you know, as in the KGB, different motives ranging from political conviction, maybe a sense of duty, or kind of bloated self-importance to a fear of reprisals. Like, they were actually people who really loved the Stasi and were proud to be to work there. But for the most part, um, at least I think so, because this was so in the KGB, these were just people who either had gotten themselves into trouble and, you know, sometimes it's just really hard to say no to some nice men who come to your home uh, ask how your how your grandma is doing, and how, while while your kids, whom they know by name, are living over there, and you're doing something interesting, you just don't say no to such people. Also, in case of young collabor collaborators, it was like often a kind of a longing for recognition or kind of sense of security that uh, that made them susceptible to this Stasi recruitment. And it's kind of interesting because uh, using the youth was one of the creepiest, weirdest ways of how these agencies actually worked. And uh, the youth was used also of, uh, to gather information. For example, you could uh, just... You know, an agent who wanted to find out whether or not a certain family are watching certain forbidden news programs on the television, 
could just go to uh, to the kindergarten and ask, ask the kids, Hey, kids, could you please draw me, draw me the clock, how it looks like on the evening news, please? And you see, uh, the West German news used, like, these, um, these golden, golden stripes, uh, for, for our markings, except they had red, uh, red balls on 12, 3, 6, and 9. In, in the clock, in the TV, in the evening news. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the East German news only had the golden stripes and no balls, so, uh, the kids kids really didn't didn't know how to lie that much so for example if your kid would then draw this clock how it looked like on on west germany which is very similar then your family could just get surveilled the similar things worked uh, with the kgb for example asking hey when did you celeb- when, when did you set around the when did you set around the tree asking to draw how your family eats dinner in the 25th of December or something, because of the official New Year is in the 30th, and that, that's that's when the Christmas tree should be put up. Of course, surveilling also every literal aspect of, of your life, and but the, this amount and this trickery used to basically influence children and make them surveil you and make them instruments of uh, state oppressive apparatus. Now, that's a thing <laughs> that gets really scary the more you think about it. And, by the way, about the archives and other work of these um, these undercover unofficial informers. See, we have actually read their guidelines. They were published by this organization, the foundation of uh, the Stasi investigations in 1992, and uh, they have been processing the Stasi records since, so they have learned quite a lot. From the 1950s and onwards, definitions are now found in, like, all the respective guidelines that describe and characterize the nature and activity of this unofficial collaborator. But there is not just one exact definition valid that would be correct for the complete history of the Stasi. Well, one reason is this, that this cult profile of the person of this unauthorized, unofficial collaborator has changed several times. However, these guidelines still contain certain universal challenges to be met by this dude, and by the whole system. The necessity of conspiracy, which is always emphasized. It was considered to be the, quote, basic principle by the Stasi, and it was characterized by the, quote, the use of secret means and methods vis-a-vis the enemy and the public powers, the disguise of politically operative plans, purposes, and measures, end quote. And also through, quote, active and offensive operations for the surprise, deception, distraction, disinformation of the enemy, end quote. In the guidelines, the conspiracy is for the most part paraphrased as, quote, private, secret, or unofficial. The intelligence service collaboration is understood as a specific form, which is based on political or material interests, or that could also be accomplished through extortion. Behind the term, collaboration, the instrumentalization of these uh, these collaborators for the goals of Stasi was hidden. By commitment to an official work, the state security service wanted a written or oral declaration of intent of the newly acquired uh, agent. The, ne- the, ne- the term <clears throat> declaration of willingness developed later on, uh, which implied that the collaborators had decided on this activity completely without the assistance of Stasi which, more often than not, was a complete lie. These collaborators were the secret link between the state security service and society. They had to bear the major burden in the conflict with the enemy, and they were considered to be uh, in contact with the enemy most directly. See, this is one of the interesting things, because, um, see, in the KGB, of course, uh, this conspiracy was, was there, but... A lot more denunciations just came from um, so-called caring neighbors and hardline politi- hardline uh, communists who just r- wrote reports uh, on on their neighbors because out of pure love for order. You know, in modern days, if you're if you're angry about something that's going on around you, you maybe write to the press. But back then, hey, why why not write to the nice men of the KGB if you actually believe what they're saying and you know. 
you you really think that they'll make your life better and that you know these young punk kids are again listening to their terrible Iron Maiden music and, and making loud noises downstairs. I better report them and then they'll show them. But the poor lady doesn't understand that what that what she what she's basically <laughs> reporting them for will lead them going to various uh, unspeakable horrors, quite possibly. Well, not always. Sometimes they might be recruited as as some actually punk singers were and sportsmen and whatever. But yeah, there's there's this risk of 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 uh, heavy retributions, disproportional retributions for whatever real or perceived crimes anyone might have done there. Interestingly enough, uh, I I am I haven't found out exactly how the Stasi uh, how the uh, how the common people actually reacted to all this Stasi operation, but uh, it must be it I I presume it was something similar to the to the KGB network where everyone was basically a bit paranoid from their co-workers and you know just just watching what they would say out loud in public. Uh, as the KGB was also always listening. And, you know, living in a constant atmosphere of fear and paranoia, and just having to having to worry all the time about being listened and watched to... Again, if you actually have something to hide, and a lot of people did, for for example, like, forbidden literature, and then, then, uh... Then you might actually, you know, snap at one point. And Stasi and, and Stasi had one interesting means of you know combating this, this forbidden literature. They they were actually using a lot of scientific means to do the situation. They, for example, used marking with radiation. Like they would open your package that you have received from somewhere, and they would find out that you're receiving some forbidden literature there. So they would mark this literature with uh, radioactive materials, which they could later detect, and then. Thus, they would just send you the package with like these forbidden books, which now all which, which now all have been marked, and then later on they would just have to go through your relatives and list of friends and whoever you meet, and just check them with a Geiger counter, and you know if they found any traces of this radioactivity, then they they had a legal cause to basically arrest you and put you in prison, and the arrest happened to a lot of people, a lot of people were arrested, the same as in the Soviet Union, but. Uh, at one point, I don't know, uh, in Stasi it's a bit different, because in KGB the main oppressing tool became these insane asylums and this constant fear of, of actually just being beaten up or, or something terrible just happening to you. While in the Stasi era, they, uh, they basically never, never became... They were run by Stalinists. They were fanatical Stalinists. They never became any less kind of um, cooler, I suppose. Because when in the Soviet Union, kind of Khrushchev decided to denounce Stalinism, even though he was also responsible himself for mass murders, they decided kind of to try to move on with a bit more humane things. Gulags, sure, they were there, but but a lot fewer people were sent there, and they tried to move to a more somewhat somewhat humane thing without any mass purges. While, well, as far as I have learned, and I might be mistaken here, but um, Leaders of Stasi were always staunch Stalinists and like these zealous, uh, zealous hardliner people, and that's that's kind of actually scary. For starters, we must talk about Eric Mielke. Definitely, if we're if we're starting to talk about the hardliner Stalinists running all these services, so let's get on with that. Erich Mielke was basically running the Stasi. Unlike in the USSR, where the ex-KGB directors became general secretaries themselves, as happened, for example, with Andropov, and thus the KGB heads, you know, actually changed now and then, Mielke ran the whole thing for over 30 years and chose to be a dark horse, somewhat of a grey cardinal figure himself, being called the master of fear in the Western press. And he managed to stay in power for so long because, um, you know, he worked by the rule, um, you help me, I will not stab you in the back. Because apparently he had gathered a huge amount of information of these, like, of terrible information that would lead to downfall of many high-standing high SED party officials, including Hönecker. Uh, for Hönecker, by the way, it is reported that he had some documents that Hönecker 
who had been arrested by the Gestapo and had been tortured, had denounced a bunch of uh, communist cells and his own comrades in Germany under the Nazis. So uh, that would, that would of course, cost Honecker a lot. But for this, Mielke just wanted to be left alone and allowed to expropriate the money, as they did, and to plan things. And he was a, he was a fanatical planner. But he never actually became the the kind of leader himself. He left he left it to these other men. He was a fanatical Stalinist. Yeah. And for our listeners who are following our Stalin series, you should be able to compare this description of Mielke with the personality of Stalin himself. Australian journalist Anne Funder has written of Mielke. <clears throat> Quote, It is said that psychopaths, people utterly untroubled by conscious make supremely effective generals and politicians, and perhaps he was one. Yeah, uh, this this is very respect, very kind of, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if if she would talk about Stalin the same way. And um, if Milka was like that, then that tells tells you something about his um, his way of doing things, so to speak. <laughs> Erich Milka was born in 1907 in the working class district Wedding. In Berlin, known at that time as the Red Wedding, which is funny in itself and uh, neat reference. He came from a very simple family. The worker, the father, worked as a cartwright, and he was an ardent communist, which gave a strong imprint to young Mielke. At the age of fourteen, he gave a speech at the Kommunistischen Jugendverband Deutschlands, or the, the Communist Youth of Germany, and four years later, he became a member of the Communist Party of Germany. In addition to his ideologic activity, Mielke graduated in 1927 as a forwarding agent. The late 20s and the early 30s were marked often by violent armed hostilities among the um, NSDAP, the Nazi Party, and the Communist Party of Germany, and the brawls were not uncommon. In this period, Mielke was in the <clears throat> Röter Frontkämpfebund, the Alliance of Red Front Fighters, and in 1931, took part at the <clears throat> Self-Protection Party, which were both paramilitary forces of communists. On August 9th, 1931, Mielke uh, shot, together with another member of the Self-Protection Party, two policemen during a demonstration on the Bülow Platz, which is today Rosa Luxemburg Platz in Berlin Mitte region. In order to avoid jurisdiction, Mielke and his accomplices were taken by the KDP, <coughs> KPD to the Soviet Union. Guess what? During the years of the Soviet exile, Mielke had been ide- ideologically trained in the Lenin School in Moscow. Lenin School in Moscow was the one where they trained, um, where, where they trained foreign spies and, and agents for work in foreign countries. Later on in this Lenin school, which was also a diplomatic school, they would continue on training agents for the German Democratic Republic and for all of our friends and comrades all over the place, including like some Cubans and Polish and everyone. All the friendly, nice, um, <clears throat> brotherly republics. From 1936, during the Spanish Civil War, Mielke served as an officer of the Stalinist secret police in the International Brigades. His uh, his secret name was Fritz Leisner. At the beginning of the Second World War in 1939, Mielke, appointed by the KPD, moved to Belgium, and in 1940 went from there to Toulouse. There, he worked as a construction worker and hid his real identity. A year before the war ended, his work team was integrated into the German <clears throat> organization Tot. So Mielke came unscathed through the, through the period of Second World War, uh, doing uh, basically organizing resistance against the Nazis uh, in, in the underground and, and doing general sabotage and spying activities as a field agent. Less than a month after the end of the World War Two, on 14th of June... 1945, uh, that is the end of the war in Europe, of course. Mielke announced announced at its party in Berlin and took immediate charge of the police station Berlin-Lichtenberg in the former Soviet sector. From May 1949, he was responsible to build the Hauptverwaltung zum Schutze der Volkswirtschaft, 
that is headquarters of the protection of the national economy. The predecessor of the Ministry of State Security, of the Stasi that is. With the establishment of Stasi in February 1950, Mielke, like I said before, was appointed as deputy director of the institution. In November 1957, he stood in for Weber as Minister of State Security. In the newspaper Neues Deutschland, Mielke's announcement was shortly mentioned. <clears throat> Quote, the press office of the Prime Minister announces the Minister of State Security, Ernst Wollweber, has asked for his for resignation for health reasons. The Prime Minister Grotevoll has accepted his request, and Erich Mielke will be from the 1st November of 1957 on the Ministry of State Security. So this is where he really begins taking charge of this uh, thing. He was basically running day-to-day operations previously, with previous ministers just... Uh, being the political front lines, the front lines of, of Mielke's actions, but now he was truly in charge. And he was in complete charge all the way up until his resignation on the 7th of November 1989. With over 32 years of service, he was the longest serving minister of the entire GDR. The Ministry of State Security has been, had been greatly expanded under his, his protection and, uh, he it reached these ninety ninety one thousand employees and and all these other other unofficial collaborators under Mielke. Now, once the revolution came on December third, the nineteen eighty nine, Erich Mielke, by the way, was expelled from the SED. Whereas four days later, he was arrested and was imprisoned on remand. That is, he got to sit at the end at the one of the one of these quite terrible. Torture, torture prisons where he put other people in. In the early 90s, he sat for about a month at the notorious remand center in Hohenschönhausen, today's Gedenkstätte Hohenschönhausen, which is the memorial of Hohenschönhausen. Shortly after his arrival, due to medical reasons, he was released, though. But, nevertheless, three months later, he was arrested again. The accusation was initially, quote, crimes against humanity and perversion of justice, but it changed later on. After several days in the prison in Drummelsbergen Plötzensee, Mielke stayed for the long for a long time in the prison Moabit. At this time investigations focused on the murder attempt on on Bülowplatz of nineteen thirty one. In October nineteen ninety three, the now eighty five year old man were well, a bit crazy at this point already, cause uh, room cause the prison guards then reported giving him a red phone uh, in his prison, he was convicted, convinced, convicted to a prison sentence of six years for the murders of 1931. And but just two years later, Mielke was released on parole because of his uh, old age. However, during that time, he had been deter- deteriorated completely, and there are reports of prison guards giving this once very powerful man, who used to be, by the way, a strict control freak. Uh, in the museum, you can see a small drawing of Mielkes where he describes perfectly what his breakfast should be because he quite often, because he quite often kind of liked to sleep in his office because he got a lot of work to do and he left precise instructions that in breakfast he must have two eggs, uh, two boiled eggs which must be boiled for exactly four and a half minutes with his secretary and also how everything should look on the plate like with precise like. Six centimeters from the right side, there should be my, there, there should be like my knife and my fork and stuff like that. Like everything was, was schematically drawn out. Of course, he himself watched Western television set made by Phillips, but that, that's a different question. But yeah, after he was released on parole because of his age, he was, um, he was moved to the Berlin district of Hohenschönhausen. And, uh, he died on the 22nd of May of 2000 at the age of 93, in a retirement home in Berlin. And now he's buried at the central cemetery of uh, Friedrichsfelde, uh, in an anonymous urn grave, apparently. But, oh no, this this man was um, one of the long-running, long-running people around of, of, like, the communist East in general. I mean... Sure, the KGB had materials on him as well, but he happened to have some materials on Khrushchev as well, as it's rumored. So it was like a mutually assured, let's not backstab each other thing. So, 
after the terrible noises outside of my window, they're uh, building something. I finally finished, and uh, I can uh, focus on the show again. And yeah, sorry for the previous parts, but it's um, it's hard to do a coherent narrative if you're interrupted every five minutes and you're three days late, so you have to have to make an episode anyways. But yeah, I want to do a sort of a recap and a um, well final comparison. Well then, what is the differences between the Stasi and the KGB? Notice uh, how I did not describe um, the horrors of Stasi remand prisons at the time and how they picked up people from the street because those, as far as I know, are, uh, well, just taken out of the KGB rulebook with a less beating, more humiliation, though, especially in the remand things because the Stasi Museum Guide told us that the methodical beatings were mostly over in the remand prisons by the 60s. You were just kept without food and constantly awake. But everything else about the sleeping towards the sunlight and everything, yeah, that remained in place. Also, Stasi employed much more technical means of surveillance rather than uh, humans. Well, they had a lot of this informant network, yes, but these informants were also trained to place cameras, bug things... Uh, watch certain certain posts and stuff. Uh, Stasi was like really huge on these hidden cameras and bugs, way more so than the KGB. Well, then again, Stasi didn't exactly have a humongous army at their disposal with artillery pieces and everything. Sure, they had their own special forces unit, but we can't really talk about a massive army. Well, they they had the Volkspolizei, and they had some squads in that which they used, but. We can't talk about battalions of artillery pointed at your own people. All in all, it seems that the KGB used to be the much more brutal, brutal kind of good enough thing of the two, while Stasi eventually became one of the leading train trainers who sent their specialists uh, around the uh, the kind of the red block. Uh, the the Komi the Komi country world to train people while the KGB and the Soviet Union mostly sent equipment. Uh, the Stasi people and these Germans were famous for sending their t- trainers, and the people who re- really were instructors later on. And you know it, you kind of can feel it that this technological advantage over KGB that the Stasi possessed also kind of gave them an edge. However, KGB could be sneaky, and like I said, uh, they always preferred the more brutal means. They would still beat you up, because beating up would be traditional, and also KGB employed alcohol much more than than the Stasi did. Even though sometimes sometimes the weird things would happen, for example, uh, a common method of getting getting people who had um, who had gone escaped to West Berlin from East Berlin was that a Stasi agent would then later on befriend them in the West already, and then he would give them a glass of poisoned wine or poisoned champagne, you know, and he would pretend to be their best buddy, maybe a fellow escapee over the wall and stuff, and then, you know, you would go to a party with him, have a drink, and then would wake up back in the house, as it's called, and uh, you would go to a prison for a while. And these prisons, they really changed people, so to speak. Uh, at least that is what uh, my guide told me. Now, in KGB, just <laughs> they they mostly preferred to just lock you away for a long while, and uh, killing was much more prominent in the KGB rather than the Stasi. But well, Stasi had no issues with killing people too. Uh, Mailer himself he stated about the shooting people at the wall was like. You know, we have to be economical with our ammunition. 70 warning shots over the head. That's nonsense. Two shots. The two shots over the head. And then you just shoot to kill. um, And he would give commendations to the agents who had shot people. That's also interesting. Uh, Secondly, he really believed that, you know, sometimes swift, swift execution without the court would be the best thing to do. Because, you know... Being a tough Stalinist, he also knew that, you know, courts were basically just another instrument of the SED party, in this case, in East Germany, to keep power. And like I said at the beginning, in my opinion, they applied certain German efficiency to that, certain sense of style. It was all done sleeker and nicer. And, you know, 
under the guiding hand of the Soviet mensch from the KGB, who ensured that uh, happiness is mandatory inside the very Stasi itself. Because I'm pretty sure even if uh, even if Mielke collected all the information on on the SED head guys. Yeah, it's um, it should be taken for for quite certain that uh, Father Stalin and later of later Khrushchev, who hated Stalin and uh, seeing as Milka was an ardent Stalinist, he they they probably would have had issues. Then again, um, I fully presume that they had enough material on him in the Soviet Union to to kind of bury him down if they wanted to. And the fact that they didn't kind of shows to the Milkas truly devotion to his um, craft, so to speak, and as the tour guides in the Stasi Museum often like to say, well, uh, they they took they took oppressing a whole people to an art form. For KGB, it was more of a, you know, work thing. But both organizations mastered their craft, and, uh, well, in a way we're glad that this situation's over. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.